Hello, and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, author and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. This show explores all forms of creativity for those searching for meaning and a place in the world. To err is human, but so is to love. Now, without further ado, here's your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. This is episode number 80, The Personality of Prose. Uh, thank you so much for all the uh, comments, uh, good and bad, <laughs> about the previous episode, the candor and communication. We'll probably have a, a, a separate um, Q&A here in, in December, sort of outlining all of that. I mean, there's enough to literally make an entire show just uh, from the comments of that one episode. So it's always exciting for folks to, um, to share their thoughts. And even if I don't always agree with them, that's fine. And I'm just happy that folks are listening and responding. Now, the name of this show, episode number 80, is The Personality of Prose. So we're going to talk mostly about prose in the sense of creative writing and fiction. But I'll, I'll, I'll talk at this a little bit about, uh, about poetry and its personality as well. But it's not really a, a, a poetry show. It's going to be mostly about, about prose, okay? Now, most folks would say, uh, well, gee, Mark, um, this personality thing, isn't that more like theme or isn't that more like mood or, or tone? And, and I say not. There, there is, in my, uh, my opinion, which I'm going to outline to you folks, a, a certain personality based on, on sentence structure or, or where they actually fall in to the piece itself. And sometimes even just, you know, the, the word usage that we, we come up with. And, and oftentimes whether it be by design or accident, we're creating a, a certain personality for the piece that's different than others that we've written. It's different than others have, have written. And there'll be times, I know I, I'll fall in this, and you probably have too, where you might be going in a direction that you originally didn't want to go to, almost like it's taken on its own personality, its own life of its own, and then you have to figure out, do I want to stick with this new course that I didn't think about before? Or is it this really too much off of what I'm trying to get across or what I'm trying to do? It really depends on if you had a, a, a previous plan or, or, or possibly, a, you know, a literary a, a agenda for that particular piece. You know, it's not the same thing as poetry, though. That's the reason why I'm trying to stick with prose in this, because oftentimes with prose, whether it's creative, nonfiction or fiction, Usually people have a preconceived notion about what they're trying to do, what they're trying to say, what, all the, what it's all about, what, what the title, how it even connects to everything. Well, poetry can often be different. Sometimes poetry can just be on a moment's thought or feeling about something, and then it gets uh, created uh, through time, inspiration, reworking, and all that, and it might be something entirely different than we had originated, but we didn't really have the, the all of the pieces in place. It, it came later. Well, oftentimes... I mean, you know, for a creative fiction piece, yeah, I want to write this piece on how to fix my roof, or I want to write this uh, nonfiction piece on, you know, the after effects of the war in Bosnia, or, um, you know, the, the famine in Africa, or I want to write this fiction piece about this ghost that somehow has a strange sense of humor and is haunting this house 
terrorizing the people, but not in a way of it wants to harm them. It's almost like it's a lonely, goofy, nerdy ghost and it has jokes. So when you think about something like that, you're like, how did this happen versus what I originally thought? And that's where the, the personality of prose comes in because it could mean from what you you have put down there, you, it's going to make you go into another direction. Or it could just mean that maybe that's where it needs to be at. Or you, you maybe this is how you designed it. I, I know that's what I do oftentimes, but oftentimes it's hard to design anything uh, on the first shot. It usually means you have to do some rewriting to sort of build that personality and not let it be, you know, incongruent with everything else you're trying to do. So let me, let me give you some examples. Um, some of this will probably sound like I'm plugging my own work, but quite frankly, when you're doing a show like this, it's more practical to own your own work because I don't care how many times somebody gives you your permission, you know, if they don't like the way the show is, they don't like the way it, it, it turned out or how they played, I mean, they could just ask me to pull it and then it kind of hurts the show. So it's sort of like my photography uh, rule in, in aerial chart. You know, it's just not a good idea. It's just, it, it, it'll ruin what your work you're trying to do. But I can look at some more classical stuff where I don't have to worry about it. And I'll give you an example on, on one here that the personality of it is unknown because the beginning sentences, as famous as they are throughout the world, don't really tell you a whole lot. It, it doesn't. To me, I don't like that. But it, it was. this is what the person, uh, in this case, Charles Dickens, tried to do. Okay? Here we go. All right? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. We all know these lines. In fact, sometimes people know them so well that they forget it was Dickens or they forget that it, that went to the tale of two cities. The problem with that line and how it doesn't establish any personality or anything else for that matter is that it is so darn vague. I mean, he's talking about London and Paris, okay? That's the two cities. But what does this mean? Does this mean that, you know, the best of times is London and the worst of times is Paris? How, how typically British. But... Does it mean that uh, I'm going to tell you about in this story some really good times and some really bad times? Yeah, that that's wonderful, Charles. I appreciate all this, but you're not telling us anything other than you know, they're, they're pretty cool lines. They're snappy, yeah, but don't tell us a whole lot of anything. But that's how that book opens up. Maybe that's how he he, he wanted to open it up with with a, with a, a maybe a, a sort of a literary exaggeration or you know exultation. You know what I mean? Almost like he's breathing out. Oh, it was the worst of times, the best of times. You know what I mean? And then I'll tell you the story. I mean, it could be that too. But again, hard to really know where the personality is on that. I would say that you have to be a whole lot more uh, direct, a whole lot more formal, a whole lot more precise, I think is probably the best word that I'm looking for. If you're going to develop any kind of personality in your particular piece, I, I really think you need to be precise. You can't be too vague. So that's a good example of where it's kind of hard to figure out where the personality is on that. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about here, I'm going to talk about some fiction. I, I picked out three uh, from uh, some of my own fiction pieces. These all come with the Corrupt City of, of My Heart. It's a selective fiction collection that I have out on somapublishing.com. So if you guys are interested in buying or checking out, whatever, you know, please do so. All right. Now, the first one here, okay, I'm talking about the personality of something on this piece from the very first line. Unlike Charles Dickens, which was kind of vague, I didn't want to do that. Mainly because his fiction is an entire novel. Maybe he can afford to be vague and get you into it later. But when you're talking about a, a short story or a short fiction, you really need to get to that point. And, and that's why 
the personality of, of a prose piece is, is so important no matter where it lands. In this case, it's going to be the beginning of the story, literally the first line. But it, it is critical. And you'll hear right away what I'm establishing over there, especially since I rewrote this thing like 10 times or something. I don't know, 11 or something like that. I mean, it was that many. If anyone uses Word, every time you do something and save it, if you go into the, the details of the, of the file itself, because remember what you're saving is an actual file, it'll literally tell you how many revisions you've had. So I've had pieces that were like 27 revisions. And this one, I think it was like 10 or 11. So you can actually hit that and see it. That's how I know that. All right. This is from a, a short fiction piece called Black Mayonnaise. And this is the opening line. Okay. Below the gray-tinted waters of my beloved Hudson River is a mother load of obsidian sludge. So I wanted to set the personality right there. I, I tried to uh, put something a little bit more light and, and personal, you know, about the, the, the river that I love. I, I grew up right next to the river in, in, uh, in Hoboken, New Jersey. And uh, we had the big uh, coffee factory there, Maxwell, right on the river as well. And directly across from that river, you see New York City. Uh, in fact, where I was living at, you could literally see the Empire State Building. Of course, uh, you know, the Trent Towers wasn't built until the 70s, and, you know, I'm, I'm a little older than that. So uh, I remember more of the, uh, of the Empire State Building. And, of course, the tugboats and the, and the boats in the water and all that. And I wanted to establish, and as the personality of this particular piece, that, um, you know, you got waters that are now gray, and they're tinted gray, okay? And, 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 you, and you got a, a lot of disgusting uh, stuff in the water from all the pollution, of the boats and people dumping things. And that's what we're talking about. Obsidian sludge with. A, a black sludge. Which of course I call in the story black mayonnaise. Divers would dive down there for things. And they literally say this was like the constitution of mayonnaise. But it was black. So that's where I got that idea from. Uh, pretty disgusting though. On, on what we're talking about in terms of pollution. But that's what I wanted to do. Here was a, here was a short fiction piece. About a river. That I grew up with and that I loved and, and and the damn thing is just polluted where the waters were blue when I grew up and, and, and suddenly they returned black over the course of a couple of decades. Later on, they uh, they find the companies that did this and they stopped all that and they had a, a cleaning project to sort of help restore the the um, the river. And, and it worked to a certain extent. I mean, God knows it's never going to be as blue as it used to be. But remember, this is the river that, um, you know... Um, uh, the uh, Explorer Hudson went through, you know, at, at the time. So this is this is why it was named after, that, that Explorer Hudson. And, uh, of course, it was blue back then. And it was still blue in my lifetime. And if you ever see any films from the 20s or in that area, you'd be incredibly shocked at how, how crystal clear that water was. By the time I, I grew up, you, you couldn't even fish in the thing because it was all polluted. There were all kinds of horrible things in it. But that is what personality is for that. And you can see from the very opening line, I wanted to do that. Now, it's a choice, okay? And when, you, when you're thinking about the personality of a piece, because I didn't have to open up like that all in all my pieces, and I don't. But in this one, I wanted to talk about uh, both my, my river that I loved and, and, and the damn pollution immediately. I just wanted to get that right off, boom, and go from there. I just felt that that was so important for that particular piece. I didn't want to work onto it. Sometimes you have to work onto something in in a piece, and the personality of that piece, or or how it's shaping, how it's coming to a head, so to speak, might not come on until later. But 
In this case, I felt it needed to go right away, and that's why I did. And that's a choice that you can make. But you can easily hear in that first line the, you know, the whole personality of that. Because as you read that short fiction piece, it's not going to steer from that kind of language. The, the, the language of, of, of disappointment and, and, and sadness and, and a bit of simmering anger in it. That, uh, you know, thanks for, for crapping on something uh, that I love that I grew up next to. that I, I can't even go swimming in it anymore. I mean, it's disgusting. So, and, and I'm not even one of those environmental people, okay? It makes me want to be more environmental, and I see what the hell happened on that. But I'm not a big environmentalist type of person. But uh, I can certainly understand why why people would feel the way they do about certain things, because uh, oftentimes in a modern society we, we can be uh, we can be careless and and reckless, and maybe even uh, just deliberately uh, destructive because uh, we don't think it's a big deal. Well, it is a big deal. All right, so you saw the personality in that. Next one, uh, Brando's uh, Bench of Blues. Now, it might be commonly known if you're a fan of Marlon Brando or if you're a fan of just some of the old films of Eli Kazan who, who directed it uh, on the waterfront. But um, Hoboken was used in, in some of the New Jersey places with news in some of the filming of these films. And that one, in this particular one, there's a gate over by the park on 11th Street, which is right where the harbor is and all where the uh, Maxwell Coffee House used to be. So when they were filming a spot of Marlon Brando there, I mean, that's a lovely spot on one of my favorite benches used to be. You know, so uh, I, I took a picture of me standing there because Marlon Brando was over there. He was, of course, there many years before I was even born. But nevertheless, it was fun to see that. And later on, my uh, my grandfather had frozen to death on the, on the bench not too far from there. Near, near the veteran statue because uh, you know he wanted to going out on another one of those uh, you know forays in the, in the middle of the night because of shell shock from World War II, and and, and it was in winter time and didn't have his coat and just passed out on the bench drunk and and Lily uh, died of exposure, which is just a nice way of saying he froze to death on the bench because he passed out from being drunk, because you know he's dealing with shell shocks. You see how it all can connect. So I, I wrote a story about that and. Um, it reminded me about Marlon Brando because of that gate and that park was the very same place where they did some of the scenes at. And that was one hell of a movie. It really was. One of the great performances uh, of, 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 of film with Marlon Brando saying, I could have been a contender. You know, and, and you could feel the, uh, the pain in him. Uh, but, uh, you know, instead he, uh, you know, he gave that up to, to you know, to take a bribe and, and, and to compromise his values and, and then later on to, re to regret that because once you... Um, once you compromise yourself, and no matter what field it is, it's hard to get back to uh, to knowing if you can ever have been something else. Maybe not the same thing in writing. Maybe you can go out and do something different in writing and, and redeem yourself. That's possible. But uh, maybe in boxing, that just wasn't going to be the same anymore. You'd always have that in the back of your head. Maybe other people would have noticed it well. Maybe no one takes you seriously anymore. Maybe you never can recover. I don't know. It wasn't like he gave it a shot in the, in the movie. But uh, that's what he was trying to express in there. So I wrote, I wrote a story about that. And um, this is uh, an example of the mid-section of a story, okay? Uh, in this particular case, uh, a short fiction piece. But I, I felt that uh, I needed to express the personality of this, of this piece in the middle. Mainly because we're talking about... Um, the, and the interruption of, of, of what it did to my grandmother when he died and, and you know, 
her casual, often cold remark about, you know, I lost him in, in, in the war years ago, so it wasn't such a, you know, a surprise to her. It didn't even seem to move her very much. I, I think he was just a, such a different person that, I don't know, maybe his death was like a relief to her. I mean, she's dead too. I don't know her exact words or feelings, but that would be my guess from, from how she reacted because it wasn't the typical uh, Italian, you know, crying and, and screaming and, and mourning and, and uh, putting on black and flowers and passing out and all that. Something that's, that's very dramatic like an opera, and that's what we're famous for. But um, this one, um, and excuse me for saying this, but this one was uh, sort of more of one of those Irish wake type of um I, I guess you could say feelings where she was more somber about it, more reflective, and wasn't as emotional. And I've been to a few Irish uh, wakes where, you know, it, it seemed that way. And uh, everybody has a different way to express themselves culturally, but uh, my grandmother seemed to take a different take on that. And like I said, it could be because of that reason. So I thought that this personality piece would be better off, the, the set it in the middle, because a lot of the beginning part of the story was about you know, her reaction, you know, the damage that, you know, that they did to the family, of course, his death itself and, you know, what he was tackling at the time, which we now know is called mental illness or depression. We now know that's what that is, but that's what they used to call it back in those days, um, a shell shock. That's what they called that. And they didn't have much treatment for it at all after you got out of the service. And most people didn't want to talk about it because uh, I'm sure it was probably embarrassing. You know, how do you tell, you know, guys in the bar? Hey, uh, man, I, I see uh, I see dead Germans in my dreams over here. And and the four people I had a stab in the forest, you know, what I mean, they, they talk to me sometimes. Yeah, you, you're not really going to get a whole lot of friends that way. And you're certainly not going to get a whole lot of people want to drink with you. They might be thinking you're drinking too much already, even though those are the things you might be seeing and hearing and having to deal with. So I'm, I can imagine how incredibly isolating that is. And I'm certainly glad that uh, the military and, and society itself is getting in a better direction of, of handling that. We're not where we need to be at yet, okay? There's still a lot of social stigma, still a lot of Hollywood nonsense, but we're getting better at it. All right, here we go. Mid-story, Brando's Bench of Blues. I often wonder about the irony and the eerie coincidence when considering Brando battled his own mental health demons, two men of a generation unwilling to share their fears or confront their nightmares. Two men grown distant from their families until no one recognized the face they chose to show the world. And that, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. That's just the person I only wanted to take on the show that, you know, in the end, um, they, uh, they kept their demons of mental health illness in the closet. And, and eventually ate, ate up at them. Ate up at my grandfather a lot earlier and he died out there for that horrible accident. And, of course, with Brando, we know that here's a man that was super charming and super intelligent and one of the greatest actors that ever lived. And But we understand but behind the scenes that all this man was doing, you know, was partying. And, and there's conflicting rumors whether he was partying with men or women or both. So we got a lot, of, a lot of information about that out there. And so we don't really know what his true sexuality was or was he just bisexual. But we know that in many instances from the people that talked about him, you know, that he was an unhappy individual, kept finding, trying to find solace with alcohol and, and sex. And, you know, it eventually destroyed his health, you know, to where, you know, you see him later on in movies and, you know, like, 
what happened to this fellow? He's be a, a man that was really in shape. I mean, sure, he's older, but what the heck happened? So um, that all went downhill, and, you know, until, uh, of course, uh, you know, he's dealing with the trial, one of his uh, his sons, uh, you know, for, for killing somebody and, and all the guilt and blame he had for not being a good father and until he, until he eventually died. So he had a um, an extraordinary professional life and apparently a horrible personal life. So um would have been nice if he could have saw somebody. But again, I don't know what they did back then to even help treat some of that stuff. And, you know, he might have been trying to exercise some of those things just through his art. You know, his, his that's why he was so incredible. Uh, of course, he was a method actor, so he used a lot of that pain and a lot of that tragedy and, and frustration that he must have had inside of him. All right, now... The next one I wanted to talk about here was the closing line. It, sometimes you you can close the story, and a lot, I don't know about you, but a lot of times writers have problems figuring out. Well, how do I how do I end this in the right zing, the right hit, the right metal? How do I do it? You know, I want to. I don't want to betray everything I did with a, with a crappy end line. You know, it, it's almost like what I talk about with titles. Please don't don't destroy your work, and you know. And throw yourself, uh, you know, off a off a bridge over here with 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 a horrible title, and the rest of the work's good. Well, sometimes with with, with fiction, particularly, you want to end, and I I'm to think you need to end, on on either a, a, a conciliatory note, depending on direction you went on your personality in this, or possibly even uh, an educational note. Hey, what about this? Or maybe just a, an additional oomph. You know, like I'm like blah. This I said boom boom boom, and now I'm gonna go boom boom. You know, something big. And bad and strong. I like to do that a lot of times. So that's why I'm saying that. But we all have a different personality of, of the piece and how we want to go about it. All right. So this one here is Loyalty Left Me Lonely. And it's literally the closing line. Okay. Sometimes daddy wants to kill someone for making him see a part of himself that needed improvement. So I, I wrote a story. You know, it has a lot of uh, truth into it about a real incident. But, you know, you fictionalize it the best you can. Um, and so some of it's true and some of it's not. All right. That's why it's called fiction. All right. But basically the the whole the whole the whole gist of the story. And, and this is why this last line works so well is. Imagine living a life where. Um, where honor. Is is one of the highest virtues. And loyalty, right up there with that. Honor and loyalty. Easy to serve in the military when you already have this as part of your culture and you have this as part of your upbringing. That these are these are amazing things that you need to 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 actually uh, deploy in your life because they will help you, you know, with with friendship. They'll help you to separate from those that are not meaning well or those that won't follow through versus those that that will. Therefore, you, you gain some more respect. You gain some more reliability. You gain some friends who, regardless what happens to you, or regardless that whatever you might have done, they're going to still be there. Not all friends are like that, believe it or not. There's definitions and there's, there's levels of friendship. We need to realize that. You can't just call a friend a friend and expect all these things. That's always going to be the case. So... The story pretty much outlines uh, a, a father who, uh, who used those principles all his life until one day 
somebody in the school system uh, used that very same principle against his son on, on making a ruling against his son that, that hurt him educationally. And when he confronted the person on a personal basis, this is pretty much what they told him. Hey, I, I got a family too, and loyalty to the people above me, regardless of whether I agree with the decision or not, is what I find to be important to me. So this is why I did that. And he was not only dumbfounded, but he, he was struck by the fact that um, that hadn't happened to him before. It, it, it just never occurred to him that you know, loyalty can be used in that way to harm your own family by somebody else using it for what they feel is an honorable way of going about things. And you can argue all day long about, well, you know, when it comes to children, maybe you shouldn't, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, unlike a lot of other countries over here, folks, in America, education system is pretty much a gigantic jobs and political program. Education is like third, maybe, okay? They're worried more about their political butt and, and about um, what they're going to be making that year. That This is how a lot of it is. It's just a job. It's no longer a vocation or a calling. It's no longer like the teachers that I can tell you about when I grew up, who I love to this day, who who, who dealt with us in, in, in a fair and, and, and honorable fashion, who gave a damn about what would happen. Teachers that would go out into the community if one of the students was in trouble. You don't ever see something like that these days. If they're lucky they'll leave the building other than the jet, the jump in their car and go home or, or grab a sandwich or something. Or complain, I got too much work to do. That's all you get. You know, and then you have a teacher's union. How wonderful. It's not a student's union, folks. It's called a teacher's union. There's a reason for that. Because while everybody's protecting themselves, it's up to the parents to do whatever they can for that kid. Because they can't count on the education system anymore. That's going to do all that it should be doing. All that it, it can be doing. And then and you can see in this particular uh, uh, fiction piece, that's what happened. And so the person that was wondering, maybe I need to uh, uh, view this in a different way then. Because, uh, you know, if loyalty is not always going to be uh, productive and positive like this person thought that it was, then that means that loyalty is just like any other instrument. It could be used to, to help you and it could be used to hurt somebody else. Or it could be used to hurt you. And that is the case with loyalty. That's why they like to call it blind loyalty sometimes. It's the, it's the parlance meaning that um, you won't step out a side of it to see when something went wrong or see when something's bad because you're just too busy just being loyal, keeping in step, and that's that. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of unusual quotes about that. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a quote about that uh, any any um, any jerk can be loyal, and it takes a man to, you know to to make the right decision. You know, and I've heard it the other way around too. You know. Any 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 idiot can make a right decision. It takes a man to be loyal to his to his friends and family. So I guess it really depends on what you culturally feel is you know the highest priority. Is there an objective way of looking at this? That's hard to say, really. I I I really don't know if there's an objective way to look at a loyalty. I mean, because why would someone want to um really stick with you or, or or feel that you're a good friend or reliable if you if you come up with your, the first statement. Listen, man, um, I'm going to be like reliable with you and until you do something I don't agree with. Then I'm going to throw you under the bus. Or I'm going to be loyal to you just up until the case when you do something illegal. I'm not going to sit there and do my best to try to help you get out of trouble or help you get through it. I'm just going to throw you to the cops. Who the hell wants to hang out with somebody like that? So there's your, there's your objectivity right there. 
So I guess it's another thing in life we have to make a decision on. But the decision that this fellow made in this uh, story, it, it damaged him. It hurt his son and it damaged him as well. Because uh, he couldn't use um, any indignation. He couldn't use any morality. He couldn't even use any anger against the other person. Because the other person made the same case that he'd been making in his entire life. So it was a real Twilight Zones type of crossroads. But... Well, definitely one of my more favorite pieces, but uh, definitely one of the more, uh, I guess you could say, deeper and, and more painful ones. So I wanted to, I wanted to say the personality of that piece to be at last, because I wanted to be more, in this particular case, it was an educational one. Because you can rant and rave all you want in a piece, and you can have that kind of personality you think that is, but really what it is, is just, you're just ranting and raving. Uh, but the personality is that, that last one, where you, where you recognize that... Um, in the end, you're, you're angry at people um, for pretty much doing the same thing you did. So now you've got to figure out, you know, do you want to do something different going forward because you have a family? Or do you want to just keep sticking to the same thing with the understanding that sometimes that's going to be used against you or your family? So those are decisions that had to be made in that particular piece. And I think it, it, think it shows that you know, some some resolution that maybe that person might have to make some changes if they're looking to have some kind of um, fair protection or some kind of lesson for themselves and maybe even their family. It's a, it's a hard one, though. It really is. And uh, that's the reason I wanted to write that because uh, that was something I, I thought that should be written. And that's the reason why I had that, that, that candor piece, uh, the one before it here, the show about that. And I, I feel in that particular uh, piece, uh, it was kind of candid. Now, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of pieces out there that people write that I often find and this, and, and this is not to to ridicule them, but, and Shakespeare is possibly the best one, you know? And, and, and the reason why I say that is because it's very difficult at times to figure out what the personality, what he's trying to write, and mainly because it's so deep in, in the older classical uh, English that, quite frankly, no one speaks anymore. Not anybody in England speaks like that anymore, okay? It's like 500 years old, literally. No one speaks that way at all. And then in many instances... You have to read it carefully, and, and you might even have to do a little research on a couple of words, or you might have to try to understand some of the historical context. Sometimes in Shakespeare, you need to know the literature before he was even writing it to understand what the hell he's talking about. So it's really hard to establish personality when people are like going, hold on, man, I'm still trying to figure out what the other two sentences mean. I got four encyclopedias over here in a, in a Google. You know, I mean, literally, you have to do that. You just, there's a lot of times you don't know. Which is, which is kind of funny because, you know, hundreds of years later, you could read Charles Dixon's. And, and even though you could tell that he's a British writer, he's certainly not doing any of that sort of Shakespeare stuff. He, he's writing in, I, I feel, a much more plain-smoking way. And it, it's really the power uh, of him doing that, that that makes those stories so, to me, I, I find almost timeless. Almost timeless. You could say, and, and people do, Shakespeare's language is timeless. Yeah, you could say it all that. But, you know, quite frankly, um, uh, 40 years later after me reading anything from Shakespeare, I'm still just as annoyed now than I was when I first read it. Because it can be very annoying. God, how many these and thousands? This is, ah, I'm telling you. you. You don't feel the same if you're reading the King James Bible. <laughs> you know? Which has, of course, a lot of that classic English in it because those are the people that, that, that did, did the interpretation. 
but for some reason it, it just seems more more plainer you I get maybe you're more used to it but Shakespeare it, it's not such an easy thing to, to discern and to figure out so you oftentimes can only really get I feel personality from some of the classics especially Shakespeare when you're dealing with the characters intertwining with each other or interacting with each other because of the of some of the dialogue that that sort of seems a little bit more straight ahead you can kind of get an idea of it I mean it's not hard to figure out that that Hamlet is is, is really pissed off and really uh, almost psychotically demented this is not to say that he's a villain compared to all the other ridiculous people around him doing things that are absolutely immoral <laughs> but um it doesn't exactly uh, uh, make uh, his simmering uh, feelings of, of fratricide, you know, pretty much I want to kill my whole damn family, uh, doesn't make them any more legitimate. It just makes great drama and great literature. But uh, God knows you wouldn't want to have somebody walking around here like that because that's how we get school shootings from people walking around years, you know, just angry at everything, plotting uh, something one day, you know, and... Maybe uh, that's who that character was in many ways and, and how we can interpret him today, if you think about it. But you always cannot get that kind of personality. I, I, think, I think really it comes more from the, the modern, I, I feel, modern way of writing. Last maybe 100 years or so. Because we're writing in shorter form than we ever have before. I mean, if you think about it, and in case you noticed, look at the average novel. I don't care if it's a literary novel or, um, you know, a genre novel or, you know, just one of those fan, you know, Batman novels or something. They're all a lot shorter than most books were put together in the past. And so, therefore, you know, we're expressing a certain uh, personality and maybe a certain mood or, or even a theme a whole lot earlier because it's necessary to keep the audience um, in into the into the into the material, and because uh, remember we have, uh, you know, more than a hundred years ago, they didn't have a whole lot of competition to a book. You know, you're plowing the fields, or you're working in the factory, or you're reading a book. Okay, it wasn't like there was a whole lot of other things that were going on. Okay, you barely had a radio, and most people couldn't even afford those. Okay, and uh, I mean, how many times you would go into a, a, a theater or a show? <laughs> Most communities didn't even have a theater in their community, so that wasn't really happening. You know, you, you had a carnival that comes through, you know, now and then. That'd be about it. So there wasn't a whole lot of competition, unlike today, where it, literally on your phone there, there could be twenty thousand streaming options on top of all these other channels and and shows and and books and 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 mail and messages and everything else. And that's just on your phone. That's not even about getting into your house with the computer and the TV and your community with a movie theater and a you know, concert hall and, and, and a theater and, and, and a playground for the, for the state fair. And it's just endless. So I think in many ways the modern life has put some kind of pressure on the modern writer and the modern uh, material to, to be shorter, to be faster. I think a, a flash fiction in many ways is an outgrowth of that. So personality becomes a, a, a real a real thing that you should be trying to strive for and help shape because it, it'll help give that particular piece that zing that you, that you find necessary for somebody to really to really get a foothold in what you're trying to say and do and, and more importantly than that without trying to sound like a marketing nerd over here I mean if people get that meaning they get that zing for you they get that wow like that hit home for me they're going to remember you 
You know, I want to see something else from Mark. That other one was what well, that was a hell of a doozy there. You know, I I I want to I want to check out more of genre stuff because wow, this other thing really reached me. You know, you know, John, what? Ooh, this is this is definitely it, man. And so from this from that standpoint too, you want to be able to establish that. Now, when it comes to poetry, folks, you know, and we'll talk about that this shortly. Because it's a little bit different. You're not going to get sentences in, 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 in poetry for the most part. Even if it's a prose poem, it's not going to be the same. Because oftentimes, the personality that's contained in a poetry and how it could literally shift immediately is through word, word selection. How you deploy a word in what context and what you did with it can change everything in, in, in a poem. You know, And you have to really keep that in mind. Sometimes I don't think people... Especially poets, they, they don't take that enough to heart. I don't know if people are in a rush or they have different priorities or they just think because it's short, it's easy. I mean, poetry is some of the hardest writing to, to do. And, and if you haven't realized that by now, you're not doing enough of it. You're not practicing enough. You know, I, I honor writers when they say, hey, Mark, I, you know, I think you misspelled my name. And that's fine. But I, I mean, you, the misspelling your name should not be as, uh, more important than misspelling something in, in the poem. Or, or, or putting your poem in, in a way that sounds more pedestrian than it than it sounds poetic, or or, or the applying word, words that are, that have become cliche, or or, or or meanings that we've heard before, you know. So maybe you should be worrying about your name last and start worrying about trying to get that piece better before you put it out there in the first place. That's really what people should be doing and, and concentrating on that because it all hinges on that. What do you think I stress so much about this idol? Everything hinges on what you do. And people say, oh, my God, Mark, I think you're going overboard with this. Well, guess what? I'm not going overboard with this. You know why? Because logic tells us, okay, that even if you count the three words in the title, the average poem has maybe about 35 to 40 words. The average short poem, that's what it has. You're going to have a couple of uh, poems that will be 100 to 200 words. But again, even people these days are not writing that long of a poem anymore. In fact, a lot of publications won't take poems over 65 or 75 lines before it's considered too long for them. So in many instances, you, you're writing less. You're writing shorter. So if I got, and let's say each each line has maybe three words, and I got a 25-line you know, poem over here. I got 75 words, okay? And if I'm having an issue with two or three of them and stuff, that literally can change the whole meaning of the poem. It can hurt it. It can make it greater depending on how you're doing that. So if you're not sitting there looking at it carefully, you're not trying to rewrite it, you're not saying, is this really the word that I should be using? You're putting something out there that, that could have went from great to not great in, in a heartbeat, okay? And when that's the case, that's when you need to rewrite. That's when maybe an editor should sometimes set in. You don't think you could have did this a little better? You don't think that? Do you mean this? Blah, blah, blah. That's that's what I mean by that, and it's important. The entire personality of it can be just changed by by how you're going about it, or in many ways, if you just not even think about it. And this is why, when I have to, uh, as an editor uh, for a literary magazine, uh, whether it be fiction or, or poetry, sometimes I just have to reject pieces, and I, I always make commentary. I don't I don't do no soulless form letter stuff, but I usually have to make a you know. Comments about where was your thought frame on this? Why did you give up over here? Why didn't you follow through over there? What's going on? I, sometimes I wonder if people just think they're done after they're done a first draft of something and submit it. 
Because sometimes it seems that way. And other times this looks like you can see um, improvements and you can see uh, real superior quality in, in some parts of it and then others not. Almost like they, you know, gave up or, or they thought they were okay. Or, I mean, they're just not seeing all of it. They're not looking at it again and again. You really need to be doing that. Remember, folks, if you're going to achieve some really good writing and you're going to be able to establish some personality in it, it's all about rewriting. Writing is about rewriting, okay? It's not writing. It's not just about writing. You don't just write and send it in and, oh, I hope it's okay. You have to look at things again and again. So if you got, I don't know, 10 pieces, let's say you did that day, you know, you're not, you, you're not shouldn't be sending any of those out. You should be looking at them over the course of the next week or two. You know, with, and oftentimes you'll look at them with different moods and different eyes and, and different feelings. And, and it, right from there, you could be making adjustments, making corrections, improving upon it. Sometimes it might even be, need to be rewritten over again. Other times it won't need as much. But that's what you're supposed to be doing in order to be able to, to shape and craft something that makes that makes sense and, and, and that really gets out what you want. And, and that really stands out really amongst everybody else. Otherwise it's going to be half-baked and folks that's not, that's not writing, that's scribbling. And I have to turn back a lot of that sort of stuff. So please keep that in mind, okay? All right, folks, until, uh, until next time here at, at Strength to be Human, I want to wish you a, a, a great day. we got another wonderful episode coming up here in, in, in a couple of days, and I think you'll definitely be excited. God bless until next time. This is Mark Anthony Rossi, your host, Strength to be Human. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by purchasing an ebook at Soma Publishing, www.somapublishing.com.